Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is June the 1st, 2023. Um, last year, I did a great show with a very distinguished historian, Matthew Delmont, on what we called the simultaneously heroic and shameful story of African-American soldiers in World War II. He has an important new book out. He's a historian, uh, half American, the epic story of African-Americans fighting World War II at home and abroad. Uh, and today we're pursuing a somewhat similar theme, but only uh, the story of black American soldiers and one particularly distinguished African-American, W.E.B. Du Bois, in the First World War. As it happens, this book just came out last month, um, and the book was very well reviewed in the New York Times by Matthew Delmont. I'm thrilled that um, Chad Williams, the author of um, uh, uh, Wounded World, is with us. Chad, congratulations on the new book. Well, thank you very much, Andrew. I mean, I think it's rather facile to compare the experience of World War One and World War Two for African-Americans in terms of what was more shameful, what was more discriminatory and mm. more unjust. Um, but how does World War One, the experience of African-American soldiers in World War One, compare to the experience of African-American soldiers in World War Two? Yeah, I think there are, there are important uh, similarities as well as differences uh, as well. And it's really important to understand the history of the Black experience in World War I and the particular history and experience of African-American soldiers in order to fully appreciate their experiences during World War II. Many of the same challenges that Black soldiers faced in World War II that Mal Delmont writes about so eloquently in his uh, recent book, were experienced by African-American soldiers in World War I in terms of Jim Crow uh, discrimination, uh, racial violence, uh, the uh, disconnect uh, between fighting for democracy abroad and not uh, experiencing and receiving a democracy uh, at home. Uh, many of those uh, similarities uh, existed between uh, the two uh, world wars, um, but there are important differences uh, as well. Um, 380,000 African-Americans served in the American army during World War I, according to the National Archives. How does that compare to the Second World War? The number of African-American troops in World War II was significantly um, higher. Um, World War II was obviously a much uh, bigger war in terms of the American war effort, uh, the size and scale of the American uh, military um, uh, experience. Um, but the uh, numbers uh, of Black troops who served in World War I at the time uh, was incredibly significant. It was the highest number of Black troops that had ever served in the American Army um, up to that point. Uh, prior to, to World War I, uh, there were roughly uh, 200,000 African Americans uh, who served in the Union Army uh, during uh, the Civil War. Uh, so the number of African American troops who served in World War I was actually quite uh, significant. Um, and I think it's something that many Americans, even today, do not fully appreciate, are not aware of the significant contributions uh, that African Americans made 
to the American war effort in World War I and the specific experiences of African-American troops. That was something that W.B. Du Bois uh, was uh, very much invested uh, in, in, in learning about. The Delmont book is a straight history of African-Americans in the war. Your book is a kind of book about a book or a book about an imaginary book. Hmm. Um, your book, The Wounded World, W.E.B. Du Bois in the First World War, is a book about a book that W.E.B. Du Bois intended to write about the African-American experience in World War I. Tell me a little bit more about that. I have to admit, I, I wasn't familiar with this story. It's a remarkable story. It really is uh, remarkable. Um, I was doing research for uh, what would become my first book, Torchbearers of Democracy, uh, and came across uh, an unfinished and unpublished manuscript by W.E.B. Du Bois on the Black experience in World War I that he titled The Black Man and the Wounded World. He worked on this project uh, for nearly two decades. Uh, it would have been one of his most significant works of history and arguably the definitive history of the Black experience in the war, and he never finished it. Uh, and very few historians know anything about this remarkable project and Du Bois's long investment in writing about, but also reckoning with the history and legacy of World War I. That's the story that I, that I tell in my book. W.E.B. Du Bois is, is arguably the greatest African-American intellectual in history, as well as one of the greatest American intellectuals in history, perhaps the greatest. Most people would be familiar with his work, The Souls of Black Folk from 1903. Uh, give us an outline of Du Bois's uh, history in the first 15 or 20 years of the 20th century after the souls of black folks came out. Sure, uh, and Du Bois is such a remarkable individual. He lived an incredible life, 95 years uh, from 1868, uh, born just a few years after the end of the Civil War, dies in Ghana in 1963, literally on the eve of the March on Washington for jobs and freedom. Such a long, complex life. Uh, and it's important to understand him at different moments, at different times uh, in his life. Um, du Bois, after he publishes The Souls of Black Folk, is arguably one of the leading voices um, African-Americans and other peoples of African uh, descent, certainly um, at the dawn of the 20th century. Uh, he had an incredible pedigree, the first African-American to receive a PhD uh, from Harvard uh, University. Uh, he had published works in history and sociology. Uh, so by the time he publishes The Souls um, of Black Folk and in the years leading up to World War I, he's widely recognized as uh, not only the preeminent Black intellectual uh, in the country, uh, but one of the most uh, significant leaders of Black people in the United States and really throughout the entire African diaspora. He's often compared and contrasted with Booker T. Washington. Is that a... Uh, a, a fair comparison? Is that helpful both to make sense of Booker T and Du Bois and also make sense of some of the, the intellectual arguments and discussions within the African-American community at the beginning of the 20th century? Certainly the uh, debate, the rivalry, if you want to characterize it uh, that way between W.B. Du Bois and Booker T. Washington was one of the defining moments of the Black experience uh, in the early 20th century, this larger question of what was the best course of action for African-Americans uh, to take uh, in fighting for 
uh, their citizenship, uh, their, their basic human rights uh, in the United States, uh, this, this larger um, issue of the color line, uh, something that Du Bois was deeply invested in. He believed, uh, unlike Booker T. Washington, that it was essential for African-Americans to assert uh, their uh, civic uh, and, and racial uh, equality, uh, to fight for um, higher education, um, and to not compromise uh, in the face of white supremacy and attacks on African-American uh, humanity. Uh, this was a larger uh, debate about who was uh, best suited uh, to speak um, on the behalf um, of Black people um, and to represent uh, Black people uh, in the early 20th century. Some of the criticisms of Booker T is that it was a, a kind of tac tacit acknowledgement of a, a parallel world, perhaps an inferior world for Black Americans, whereas Du Bois was uh, ag aggressively integrationalist, suggesting that whatever whites could do, blacks could do as well, if not better. Hmm. How did this play out in terms of the war? Were, hmm. were the, the Booker T crowd, were they less interested or perhaps indifferent to African-Americans serving in the war as, as Du Bois, who, 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 who is controversially associated with being in favor of the war? Certainly. Well, it's important to, to remember that Booker T. Washington passes away in 1915. Uh, so by the time the United States enters the war, W.B. Du Bois is arguably the unquestioned voice um, of the race. Uh, and most uh, African-Americans, particularly uh, most educated um, African-Americans, um, were following his lead uh, and recognizing that his voice carried tremendous weight. So when the United States enters the war and Du Bois makes uh, the very difficult decision to support uh, the United States, to support uh, the Allied um, effort, uh, he's speaking uh, for a larger constituency um, of African-Americans uh, that have uh, his support. Many of those individuals were also associated uh, at one time or another uh, with uh, the Tuskegee uh, Institute uh, and Booker T. Washington. Uh, so, so most um, African-Americans, particularly those of the so-called talented 10th, as Du Bois uh, described him, uh, thought the way that, that he did, that African-Americans needed to support their country. They needed to do their duty in fighting uh, for their country and hopefully uh, in the end, expanding uh, the boundaries of democracy in the United States uh, and uh, gaining uh, increased citizenship rights um, at the end of the war. Chad, you 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 just you, you talked about Du Bois's quote unquote voice. Of course, no Americans knew the voices of their um, of their politicians or leaders or thinkers uh, unless they experienced them in person. Mm -hmm. The most distinguished and successful Americans tended to be great speakers, like William Jennings Bryan. How did Du Bois communicate with? Uh, with America, particularly Black America, but also White America, was he a good speaker? Did he have a great voice, like Brian? Du <laughs> uh, Bois didn't have the the best uh, speaking voice. Uh, you know, he he couldn't rile up a, a, a crowd. You know, the way that a William Jennings Bryan or 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 Teddy Roosevelt could, or even a Booker T. Washington, uh, for that matter. Du Bois was was an intellectual. He was very professorial uh, in many ways, in terms of his uh, public uh, oratory. Uh, he was best suited um, 
to communicate with African-Americans through the written word, um, and especially through the crisis, uh, which he edited for the NAACP. His editorials really served as the way for him to express his views, uh, his opinions on pretty much every major issue that Black people were facing in the country, uh, as well as uh, throughout the world uh, during the time that he was editor of the crisis. Uh, so even though he spoke extensively uh, throughout uh, the country, uh, he was not necessarily known for being the most uh, rousing public speaker. In an odd way, perhaps his professorial air was similar to, to Woodrow Wilson, the president. We've done a number of shows, Chad, on the America of this time and the enormous complexity and passion of whether America should enter the war. Did a show with Neil Lanktart on Teddy Roosevelt, Woodrow Wilson, and Jane Addams, and the progressivism that dragged or didn't drag America into war. Another with uh, Neil, uh, with uh, Mark Arsenault about uh, mm. the imposters' war, propaganda, and press. Tell us about why Du Bois was in favor of the war, because had you had one not known the story, I think a lot of people would simply have guessed that he. he he wouldn't have supported the war, perhaps seeing it in many ways as a white man's war, a colonial war, a war mm -hmm. fought many thousands of, of miles away over territory which has nothing to do with African-Americans. Yeah, Du Bois has a, a very complex relationship to the war. As I, uh, as I tell uh, in my book, uh, he considered himself a pacifist. Uh, he was, at least in theory, opposed to war. But he also recognized that the war was a potentially unique opportunity for African-Americans and other peoples of African descent to change the course of the 20th century as it related to the future of democracy. He identified the roots of the war uh, very uh, prophetically uh, in the imperial and colonial uh, competition uh, for Africa its human and material resources amongst uh, the different uh, European uh, powers. Um, but he also recognized that the war was an opportunity, um, a rare moment to actually destabilize uh, the, uh, uh, the future uh, of empire and to lay the groundwork uh, for eventual self-determination uh, and democratic rights for peoples of African uh, descent. So just as African-Americans had fought uh, in every American war prior to, to World War I, just as they had served valiantly on the battlefield in the Civil War, for example, in fighting for their freedom and eventual citizenship, Du Bois believed that World War I, uh, the Great War, as it was called at the time, uh, would be a similar moment, but on an even grander scale to bring democracy uh, to Black people in the United States, uh, as well as uh, throughout the broader diaspora. In an odd way, then, he wasn't that different from uh, some of the, the nationalists in Central and Eastern Europe who saw the war as an opportunity for emancipation. What was his association with uh, the left, um, not necessarily the Marxist left, but people who rejected the war Mm -hmm. uh, people who saw the war particularly in colonial terms. W w was, that, um, was that socialist uh, tradition of, of Debs, did it have much impact on the African-American community? 
Did there was a a small but very vibrant and vocal uh, Black socialist uh, community, largely centered in New York City. Uh, a. Philip Randolph and Chandler Owen, for example, were editors of a radical socialist uh, newspaper called The Messenger. Uh, so there was a small community of African Americans who were very vocal in their opposition to the war and very critical um, of W.B. Du Bois uh, and other African-Americans. I can imagine. I'm sure they were deeply disappointed with Du Bois. Deeply uh, disappointed. Du Bois at one time uh, was a member of the Socialist uh, Party, very briefly. Uh, he cast aside his membership of the Socialist Party to support uh, Woodrow Wilson in 1912, which turned out to be a complete uh, disaster. So Du Bois's relationship with uh, the radical left and uh, the Socialist Party in particular uh, during World War I uh, was, was incredibly uh, vexed. Uh, and many of his uh, radical um, associates, uh, even some of whom were on the NAACP board um, of directors, um, you know, did not believe uh, that the United States uh, should have entered uh, the war. Um, and that really strained uh, their relationships uh, with uh, Du Bois. And of course, that manifests itself uh, in even more uh, visceral terms uh, in the aftermath um, of the war. You know, when it's clear uh, that the United States um, uh, and African-Americans uh, in particular uh, were not going to gain anything from their uh, sacrifice in this horrific conflict. How high up did Du Bois go in terms of who he talked to, who he mixed with? Um, did he have conversations with Wilson? Was he well, well acquainted with uh, that DC world of uh, political insiders? He was. He didn't have any direct one-on-one uh, -on -one conversations uh, with Woodrow Wilson, uh, but the war was an opportunity, um, as Du Bois saw it, to demonstrate his Americanness, right? this uh, sense of two-ness that he writes about in The Souls of Black Folk, of being Black on the one hand and of being American on the other, right? The warring ideals of being Black and American and the desire to reconcile the two. Du Bois felt, and these were, were his words, that he felt closer to being an American during the war than at any other time or since in his life. Um, and he threw himself into the American war effort of uh, establishing close relationships with government officials in Washington, D.C., including uh, the Secretary um, of War, um, other uh, high-ranking uh, officials uh, in the White House. Uh, so his proximity uh, to governmental power um, was uh, incredibly uh, important, but also very seductive. Uh, in terms of why he uh, supported uh, the war and the regrets uh, that he would have in the aftermath of the war as well. The debate about the war, of course, was complicated at different times. Did he change his mind at all? I mean, how did he respond, for example, to the Russian Revolution and the Russian decision to get out of the war? Was he always pro-war or, or did it require the, the sinking of the Lusitania or something else, the, the Zimmerman tem, uh, telegram, to convince him that America needed to enter this war? Yeah, he was uh, really from the start very critical of the war. Um, as I said, he saw it as uh, an imperial war. He saw it really as uh, evidence of the failure of European Enlightenment civilization um, and uh, he didn't really see uh, the, the ultimate uh, importance 
right, of uh, black people involving uh, themselves uh, in the war until the United States uh, makes the, the fateful uh, decision uh, to enter uh, the conflict. Uh, and Du Bois then recognizes uh, that it's his duty as an American to support uh, his country. And he does so very controversially, uh, really throughout uh, the duration of America's participation in the war. He writes um, an editorial entitled Close Ranks uh, in the July 1918 issue of The Crisis, where he encourages African-Americans to set aside their special grievances and support uh, their country. Uh, so his views on the war evolve um, over, the t over time, and he ultimately gets swept up uh, into the hyper-patriotism, uh, the hyper-nationalism um, of the American war effort and his desire to, um, to reconcile uh, these uh, conflicting aspects of Black identity and to be seen as fully American. Chad, it wasn't just, of course, the left that were opposed to the war in America. There were many, quote unquote, American nationalists who were isolationists, who thought that it, 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 it wasn't the business of America to become involved in the war. Can one make generalizations in this period about the South and the war, the white South, uh, the, the South that had essentially uh, failed to be reconstructed and was re-architecting itself uh, in the context of Jim Crow? What, what were the, the typical, and I know this is probably a hard generalization, but the, the classic Jim Crow politician, that, that um, segment of American political life, what was their take on the war? They weren't always particularly bellicose, were they? So you have a, a number of, of Southern politicians like James Vardaman, a senator from Mississippi, for example, uh, who is opposed to the United States uh, entering uh, the war. Um, for the most part, most uh, white Southerners, uh, particularly poor uh, white Southerners, uh, were very apathetic uh, to the United States uh, entering uh, the war and especially being drafted into uh, the army. So part of the, the challenge that the United States faced, part of the challenge that Woodrow Wilson faced, was convincing a very skeptical uh, American public and uh, convincing uh, white Democrats uh, in the South uh, that they needed to rally uh, behind uh, the war effort. Um, he did that uh, through incredible uh, means of, of propaganda, but also uh, repression uh, through the Alien and, and Sedition uh, Acts, uh, among other measures. Uh, so. The, the efforts uh, to uh, gain support um, of, of white Southerners uh, was uh, certainly uh, a challenge. Uh, their support uh, was not given, uh, but it does, I think, speak to the incredible scale, the size scale um, of the American uh, war effort um, and uh, the propaganda uh, campaign that went along with it. You mentioned the Alien and Sedition Act. Uh, we've done shows with Adam Hothchild, uh written a wonderful book, American Midnight, The Great mm -hmm. War of Violent Peace and Democracy's Forgotten Crisis about the, the authoritarian outcome in America domestically of the war. Do you think that, uh, two questions, uh, Chad, kind of connected. Do you personally think that Du Bois made an error? And secondly, did he recognize in the outcome, in the aftermath of the war where American democracy wasn't enriched. If anything, it was undermined mm -hmm. um, by an increasingly uh, 
surveillance state in some ways, dominated by secret police, lots of persecution of leftists, of unionists. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so a two-part question. Did, in your view, did he make a mistake? And did he second-guess himself after the war? So I think it's important to, to answer that question by taking Du Bois seriously in the context of his, of his times uh, and, and recognizing that he genuinely hoped, genuinely believed uh, that the war was going to be a turning point, um, a moment of change and possibility for um, African-Americans, right? Harkening back to earlier conflicts like uh, the Civil War, when African-Americans gained freedom uh, and citizenship. Uh, he believed that World War I was going to be a similar um, opportunity uh, for uh, Black people. So I think in the moment that Du Bois was in, he made the best decision that, that he could. Um, and in some ways, it's not a, a surprising decision that he supported the war. Now, obviously, in hindsight, uh, we can say that Du Bois uh, made a, a grave error. And Du Bois himself, as I write about in my book, uh, recognized uh, that he did, in fact, make an error in supporting uh, the war. One of the major themes of my book is the deep disillusionment uh, that Du Bois wrestled with uh, in the immediate aftermath um, of the war throughout the entire interwar period right, about the failure um, of the war, the failure of American democracy, and ultimately his own personal failure in supporting this conflict, which, as he uh, you know, wrote about extensively in the book that he tried to, to, to finish um, and in other writings, ultimately made the world uh, even worse, wounded uh, the world in such a deep, profound way that it led to an even more catastrophic world war, um, you know, two decades later. Is it possible to argue, I know that historians are always careful about making too many generalizations and connecting sometimes disconnected things, but is it possible to argue that you never would have had FDR and um, his so-called black cabinet, even if he in some ways, FDR also disappointed the African-American community without the First World War. I mean, not much, of course, changed in the 20s. Coolidge, Harding, uh, Hoover were all indifferent to the, to mm. the African-American community. But stuff changed quite dramatically under FDR. One, one of the arguments that I, I make uh, in my book is that World War I was a critical moment in the broader struggle for Black freedom and equality in the 20th century. Uh, the struggles of African Americans for democracy and equal rights, um, for full civic uh, inclusion, participation in all aspects of the government. World War I laid the foundation uh, for, for those efforts as they evolved throughout the 1920s and into uh, the 1930s. Uh, so um, I think it is uh, fair to say that you wouldn't have had uh, the type of activism, uh, you know, through an organization like uh, the NAACP, um, you know, which grew extensively um, in the aftermath of World War I, uh, which allowed uh, for opportunities uh, to lobby, to make inroads into the federal government and ultimately uh, into the Roosevelt administration. That would not have occurred uh, without World War I. Um, what about Du Bois's attitude to America? How did that change? You mentioned that he died in Africa. Did it make him more of an Africanist, this whole experience, ultimately? Uh, du Bois has a, a very long history, uh, relationship with Africa and Pan-Africanism specifically. Uh, he 
is an attendee um, at the first Pan-African Congress of the 20th century. So he was Howard. close. Was he close to Marcus Garvey? Um, he was a, a deep rival of, of Marcus Garvey. Right. Um, I, I explore their relationship uh, in my book. Uh, du Bois, to put it uh, mildly, was uh, not a fan of, of Marcus Garvey. They ended up having a incredibly uh, vicious feud Um became very personal, but it was also over uh, differing visions um, of Pan-Africanism um, and uh, who was best suited to speak um, on the behalf of peoples of African uh, descent. Uh, so Du Bois' uh, relationship to uh, Pan-Africanism, uh, another uh, important theme that I explore in the book, uh, the Black Man in the Wounded World, the epic history that he uh, attempted to write um, is shaped uh, by his uh, Pan-African uh, uh, convictions uh, and understandings of the Pan-African dimensions of the war uh, specifically, um, and ultimately his, uh, uh, his personal uh, connections to, to Africa uh, deepen uh, throughout uh, the 1920s uh, and 30s, um, and by the time um, you know, he uh, decides to leave uh, the United States in 1961 uh, for Ghana. Uh, he's considering Africa to be his uh, his final home. Uh, and that's uh, ultimately where he is, um, where he's buried, his final resting place. How were African-Americans treated, the African-American soldiers in the First World War in Europe itself? I know in the Second World War, there was a very different kind of experience. Uh, there was much much less intolerance. Did they have the same experience in Europe? Did they have the same association and intimacy um, with, with European populations? So there are roughly 200,000 black soldiers who served in France during the war. The majority were, um, were service, uh, service of supply uh, troops, SOS troops, uh, doing all the dirty, unglamorous work of the war, stevedores, uh, digging ditches, laying railroad tracks, burying uh, dead bodies. Uh, but you also have two black combat uh, divisions uh, who served uh, quite extensively on uh, the front lines. And the experiences of these 200,000 uh, men uh, during their time in France uh, was truly uh, remarkable. It was the first time um, that many of these men had ever left uh, their homes, uh, much less traveled beyond the United States. Uh, and their time uh, in France was revelatory, uh, exposed them to a new world, a new set of possibilities uh, in terms of race relations, uh, the moments of, of friendship, um, fraternity, um, you know, even, you know, sexual relations <laughs> with, with French women. All of these really demonstrated that the color line, as it existed in the United States, you know, was not necessarily um, the norm, uh, that there were other possibilities that uh, existed. And as a result, many of these men come back uh, to the United States deeply transformed, seeing their lives uh, in a different way um, and seeing really the radical possibilities um, of, of democracy um, and um, their willingness uh, to, to fight for it uh, in the United States after the war as well. Chad, you mentioned uh, Du Bois's rivalry intellectually and personally with Marcus Garvey and also with Booker T. Mm -hmm. it, would it be fair to say that, that the most similar figure to him later in African-American history is Martin Luther King, a complicated centrist, or is that oversimplistic? Mm -hmm. 
I think there there's certainly some very important similarities between W.B. Du Bois and Martin Luther King Jr. And, and one of those is uh, Du Bois's uh, peace activism. Um, one of the, the trajectories of my book is charting how Du Bois evolves from supporting um, World War I, uh, encouraging African-Americans uh, to, to close ranks, uh, to support their country. Um, by the 1950s, he's at the forefront of the international peace movement and is being persecuted by the federal government for his anti-war beliefs. Uh, they even uh, try to put him in jail uh, in 1951. He's 83 years old and facing uh, years of, of imprisonment for his um, alleged association uh, with, uh, with the Soviet Union, simply for advocating for global peace. Similar uh, experience that Martin Luther King Jr. Um, has by the end of, of his life um, when uh, he comes out against uh, the Vietnam War, where he is considered persona non grata uh, by uh, Lyndon Johnson uh, and many other um, uh, people uh, in the country. Uh, tracing the evolution of Du Bois's uh, radicalism, particularly as it relates to peace, I think offers uh, an important insight and glimpse uh, into Martin Luther King Jr.'s uh, radicalism uh, as well. And of course, Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, deeply uh, revered uh, W.E.B. Uh, du Bois, uh, both intellectually, uh, but also in terms of his uh, political convictions and commitments as well. And then, of course, I guess uh, Malcolm X would be the the Garvey, the foil. Um, earlier today, we did a show with Andrew Krivak, a novelist. He wrote, he's just written a book, Like the Appearance of Horses, a really interesting book about different wars in American history, World War I, World War II, and Vietnam. One of the ironies, it seems to me, of African-American history is, as you know, that African-Americans struggled to be represented in the First World War. And today they're overrepresented. What do you think mm. Du Bois would make of an American army top heavy, if you like, with, with African Americans in Vietnam, in Afghanistan, in Iraq? Yeah. Um, it's really an important part of, of Du Bois's uh, intellectual uh, legacy and historical writings that I think historians have not fully appreciated. Something that I try and, and emphasize in my book is that Du Bois had a deep appreciation for uh, the black military experience and the black military uh, tradition. Uh, but he also recognized it as representing one of the fundamental tension that African-Americans faced, uh, that African-Americans continue to face today. What does it mean to fight for a country uh, that is not willing to fight for you? What does it mean to be loyal to a country uh, that does not respect your basic um, human rights, uh, much less uh, your, your citizenship rights. Or even uh, your humanity. Or, or your very humanity, absolutely. And this is something that African-Americans continue to, to wrestle with uh, today. Uh, the military has uh, served as a really important site of opportunity for African-Americans uh, in terms of economic uh, advancement in terms of uh, professional uh, advancement. Um, it's a very uh, important part of the larger story of Black people um, in uh, in this country. And I think Du Bois uh, would recognize that, but he would also recognize uh, the fundamental tensions that continue to exist um, in uh, the United States uh, military and how it continues to speak to the ongoing challenges that Black people face of um, being recognized as uh, full Americans in this country. Chad, final question, and just did an, a show also earlier today with Elliot Ackerman, actually a former American 
soldier who has a new book out, Halcyon. It's a novel which imagines the science of resurrection. Um, and he talked about resurrecting great American figures from the past and realizing mm. um, how complicated and perhaps compromised they were. If we could resurrect Du Bois today in 2024, how would he, do you think, think, what would he think of America? And perhaps even more importantly, what would we think of him? Well, as I try and, and lay out in my book, uh, Du Bois was an incredibly complex uh, individual. Uh, he was brilliant. Uh, he was unparalleled in terms of his uh, achievements, uh, but he was also deeply human. Uh, he was deeply flawed uh, in many ways. Um, one of the ways that he was flawed was his support uh, for, for World War I, you know, which he ultimately sees as a failure um, and uh, leaving a very tragic uh, legacy um, on the world, uh, but also on, um, on him uh, himself. So I think we would we would view uh, Du Bois. We should view uh, Du Bois um, as an individual uh, who was uh, very complex, uh, multi-layered. And I think if Du Bois was alive today, he would continue uh, to be at the forefront of all of the issues uh, facing uh, Black people as well as oppressed peoples uh, throughout the world. Uh, whether that's uh, war, whether that's poverty, uh, whether that's the the continued failures of uh, democracy on multiple levels, uh, the attacks um, on education and the teaching of history. Um, I could go on and on. Du Bois would be at the forefront uh, of all of those issues, and he would be pushing us uh, to uh, be uncompromising uh, in um, our commitment to fighting uh, for full justice and equality uh, for all oppressed peoples. I think one thing we could say for sure, Chad, is if we could resurrect Du Bois, he would thank you for finishing his book that he never got to write. Well, I would certainly hope that he would be be thankful. Uh, du Bois was, was a pretty harsh critic, so who knows what, what he might say about my book. But um, hopefully I, I, I did justice to, to him and, and the story that he wanted to tell in trying to write uh, the history of the war.